morning once again, North Royal. I am super excited that it is the first Sunday in December. Uh, sometimes, true confession from your pastor, sometimes Christmas is tough because there's a lot going on. It's a full schedule. Um, and it's also hard to know what to preach that isn't the same thing that you heard last year for Christmas and the year before that for Christmas and the year before that for Christmas. So we're going to do something a little different this year. We're going to dive in to that great Christmas story captured in the Old Testament book of Ruth. That's right, Ruth, the gospel according to Ruth. I, I, if you are half as excited about that as I am by the time we're done, then, then praise God. Uh, I believe uh, well, the Lord's going to show us some amazing, incredible truths about who Jesus is and just how he secured our salvation. At least that's, that's my prayer for us this morning. So you might say, why in the world would you go to the book of Ruth? On what authority do you have for that? Well, we have sort of this general authority that Ethan reminded us of a few weeks ago when he preached that Jesus says in Luke 24, the whole Old Testament is about him. It's about his life and his death and his resurrection and the proclamation of the gospel of the ends of the earth. And so if you didn't see that in the Old Testament, you should probably go back and read it again because that's what you should have seen. And then, then we have this more specific authority that comes from Matthew's gospel, chapter one, Matthew, the gospel of Matthew begins with a recounting of Jesus's Old Testament genealogy, which we preached through last year. Right. And there's a lot of fathers and sons and fathers and sons. Um, and the Old Testament genealogy is a major clue that what's going to happen in Bethlehem is going to fulfill what the Old Testament anticipated for centuries before. And so Matthew's genealogy, you've got father, son, father, son, father, son. But in verse 5, you read, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. So they put in these two little words. Matthew puts these two little words into his genealogy, by Ruth. Right? Everything else is the same, father, son, father, son. But then we get by Ruth. So there's something so significant about Ruth that Matthew would include her in the genealogy of Jesus, even though she's not a father. And in Ruth, we find a strangely similar story to the story of Christmas, a story of a childless woman who by the end of the book miraculously holds her son and the promise of God's salvation. Ruth, as we will see over the next few weeks, is a story that helps us understand the significance of Christmas and of Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, born at Christmas. So I want to invite you this morning to open your Bible or scroll on your tablet or on your phone to the Gospel according to Ruth. Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. We will read chapter 1 in its entirety. So stay locked in with me, okay? Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn, just a little trip, in the land of Moab with his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. Then they 
took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malin and Killian also died. And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard that in the land of Moab... She had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, return. My daughters, why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. As I said, I have hope. Excuse me. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go... I will go and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. But when she, excuse me, when she saw she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned and with her, Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Would you pray? God, we ask that those who are empty today would come either again or for the first time to know true fullness that comes from the bread that only you we ask it for the glory of Christ and in his precious name. Amen. Ruth, chapter 1, is a bit like the first act in a four-act play. Act 1 divides into three scenes. Scene 1, verses 1 through 5, we see a famine and a 
family's departure from Bethlehem and the calamity that comes. In scene 2, verses 6 through the first part of verse 19, Naomi hears that there's good news of God visiting his people and bringing bread to Bethlehem. And so there's this question about will her daughters-in-law return or will they not? And Ruth returns with her. And then in scene 3, we see the women arriving in Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. What can we learn from these three scenes? Scene 1, famine, flight, and futility. I believe we can summarize what God wants you to learn from these five verses in one sentence. God wants you to return or to turn to Him. God wants you to turn to Him. Verse 1 is packed with very important information for interpreting the whole of the book of Ruth. The story occurs in the days when the judges governed. This is the time after the Israelites have entered the promised land and before they have a king, which means they are functioning in this period. You remember it in Deuteronomy 28 and 27 and 28. Moses gives the blessings and the curses. And if you obey God, you will, you will have his blessing. And if you fail to obey God, then curses will come. This is the period in which they live. Judges, the book of Judges tells us about that period. And basically, it's a, a a bunch of people living unrighteous lives and then God sending a judge who is raised up to deliver them and then he dies and then they fall away and it happens all over again. It's a period marked by rebellion against God. Judges concludes with these words, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king to guide God. In the person of a man was not there guiding them as king. And just as God promised, when people turn from God, look at what happens at the beginning of Ruth. There's a famine. And God said as much in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. In other words, if you fail to follow God, don't expect it to go well in the land. You know, as a pastor, I get to meet a lot of people who are going through a lot of problems. And when we leave the place of God and the plan of God and abandon the call to serve and to worship the Son and to be on mission for Him, it is still true that God's blessing is not there. Oh, there's blessing to be found outside of the will of Christ, but it is a blessing that will perish with your life. It is a blessing that will eternally disappoint. And I want to encourage you this morning. If you're living a double life, if you're on the one hand attending church regularly, but on the other hand living as though God doesn't see or care about your life on Monday through Saturday, then I want to encourage you to repent. Because the blessing you think you're receiving Monday through Saturday living outside the will of God is a blessing that will come crashing down. But Naomi's family doesn't remain in Bethlehem and turn to God. They don't see the warning in the famine. Instead, they take the opportunity to take the bull by the horns and do their own thing. So her husband, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, whose name means my God is king. Leads his family out of the place where God had promised to give his king. Oh, the irony. A family whose 
head of household means. My God is king. God will be my king. Leads his people out of the very land where God said he would give his king. As Ferguson writes, they are forsaking the only place on earth that God has specifically given to his people. The place in which he has promised to bless them. This family surely knew that the God who gave manna in the wilderness could certainly break a famine in Bethlehem. The name of the city means house of bread. The house of bread is in the land of Judah. It's the land of the tribe from which God promised to raise up a forever king, a son who would hold the scepter that would never depart from Judah. And yet they abandoned the promised land for Moab. Perhaps. They were upset at God even before the famine came. They had named their sons Malon and Killian, which mean weakness and sickness or tiredness. When this family comes up against the famine, they also come to the tipping point for their family. Maybe you've been facing a bunch of bad circumstances in your life. Maybe God is testing you as well. Maybe He's wanting to see, will you turn to God or will you turn and walk in your own way? Their desperate circumstances appear to them to be too daunting for their seemingly distant God. And so they take matters into their own hands and they take sick and tired because they're sick and tired. And they go to Moab. 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 Yes, that, that Moab. The Moab from which the king, back in Numbers 22, hired Balaam to curse Israel. The Moab, in the period of Judges, that was ruled by Eglon, the fat king of Moab, who defeated Israel and made them his subjects for 18 years. Can you say fat king? Is that politically incorrect? That's what the Bible called him. He's a fat king. So They're the enemies of the people of God, the enemies of Israel. So they go to Moab, and, and as we always do when we drift away from our Sunday school class, when we drift away from church or from worship for just a Sunday, it just starts out as a little trip, just a sojourn. I'm just going to take a sabbatical. I'm just going to go on a hiatus for a little while. That's all they're going to do. But Elimelech says, God is my king. He's still my king. I'm just going to go over here for a little while. But verse 2 says that they entered and they remained there. Verse 4 says they were there for 10 years. And we don't know if they were there for 10 years from the time of the marriage of her sons or if Naomi was there only for 10 years. So she was there for at least 10 years, perhaps even longer than 10 years. What began as just a little self-preservation, a little time out, became a presumption that they could live without God. What they said was going to be a time out became a train wreck. Church, sin always takes you farther than you want to go and keeps you longer than you want to stay. As Ferguson writes, they seek to take the provision of God that he promises to his people apart from the repentance that God requires. Why are churches drying on the vine in North America today? Because nobody's coming back to God. Everybody wants to paper over the past, pretend as it never happened, and not reckon with the holy God who has a righteousness that says our sin must be dealt with. And the way it must be dealt with is we must return to him. You can't just pretend it never happened. Church, running from God when our circumstances seem hopeless is the path of hopelessness. When things seem hopeless, run to God. While in Moab, Naomi loses her husband in verse 3. 
And it tells us she and her sons are left all alone in enemy territory of Moab. Then her sons marry Moabite wives and her sons die childless in verse 5. Every wife needed a son back in the promised land to secure her property rights in the land. To continue the family name and to continue providing for the family. By verse 5, Naomi has lost her husbands. She's lost her sons. And what began as a little trip to Moab has become the worst possible scenario in Naomi's life. She left because salvation for her seemed unlikely in a land full of famine and with sons who were sick and tired. But now salvation is impossible. Aren't you glad we serve a God who does the impossible? Church, you will never find hope in running from God. It got really bad for Naomi. And some of you might be saying, well, did God delight in Naomi's plight? Did He delight in the losses that she faced? No, He didn't delight in that. Calamity comes when we abandon God. The bitter consequences of sin are a bit like spiritual gravity. When we rise up to be our own Savior, our lives come crashing down so that we might run to the true Savior. Because God chastens those whom He loves, Hebrews 12, 6. He does not allow us to go for long in sin without leading us to spiritual hunger. And some of you are hungry this morning. Some of you are hungry because you've been running from God. You've been pretending to know God. And you, you know that you know Him, but you've been trying to live your spirituality through checking off the boxes, but not feasting upon the Savior. Perhaps... This morning you're like Naomi, you're sick and tired of floundering in the futility of trying to forge your own path. You're desperately hungry to know and enjoy and serve God. If you're in a season of spiritual hunger this morning, dealing with the consequences of sin, or perhaps, you, perhaps you've even lost your spiritual appetite because you've been looking at other people who say they know God, but they don't act like it. And you've got your eyes off of God and on the others, and they've become your excuse to abandon being nourished by God Himself. Whatever your reason for your hunger this morning, there's bread. That God offers in Bethlehem. But it will not come to you. You will not feast upon the Savior. Unless you do what we see in verses 6 through 19. You must return to the land of God. You must go back to Bethlehem. In verse 6 we have a sliver of hope church. Naomi doesn't have a son, but she learns that Yahweh has visited or cared for or provided for his people by providing them with food. My translation says the word literally is bread. There's bread back in the house of bread. And when I was studying this week, I thought about the prodigal son. You remember the prodigal? The whole time he's, he's left his, his father's Land. He's left the provision of his father and he says, give me my inheritance early. And he runs away and he spins it all and he's there in the pigsty. And he comes to his senses. And you remember what he says? In my father's house, there's more than enough bread. Naomi hears that there's bread in Bethlehem. 
and she gets up to return. The word return in the Hebrew text, in my translation it was nine times, but in the Hebrew the word return occurs 12 times in one chapter. You think God's trying to tell us something? You see, the word for return is also the Hebrew word for repentance. So the author is using a spatial term, not a special term, a spatial term to communicate a spiritual reality. Right? The geographic transition from Moab back to Bethlehem requires a change in direction. So it is when we come to God. And what the author is doing is saying there's something more than just a change in geography going on here. There's a wrestling over, will you really repent of your sinful ways and return to God? Will Naomi go back to Bethlehem with no husband and no sons and depend and rely fully upon the Lord Himself for bread? Will her daughters-in-law go with her? Who will return? Who will really repent of their sin and run to God and His people? In verse 7, they all set out to go to the land of Judah. Of course, Orpah and Ruth were not really returning there, but just turning there because presumably they've never been to Judah before. But they are turning, right, from their foreign gods. They're turning from their Gods who aren't really God. And instead trusting in God alone and going with Naomi who represents the people of God. Or so it seemed. Everything seems normal in verse 7. They're just on a trip back to Bethlehem. And then in verse 8, really for no reason, at least no reason that the author gives to us, they stop or they have a conversation. We don't know how far down the road they are. Maybe a quarter mile Maybe a mile, maybe two or three. We don't know how far the journey is. We don't know if they stopped for lunch. We don't know if maybe it was just that awkward feeling. You ever been about to embark upon something and you just had the feeling that somebody wasn't all in? That weird silence. We don't know what it was. But what we do know is verse 8 tells us it's time for a serious conversation. Church, I want to encourage you to have serious conversations with people. We don't have much time. There's a lot of people in Moab who are dying. It's time to cut through the chit-chat in 2019 at the office. It's time to drill down and ask people, if you were to die today and God were to say, why should I let you in my heaven? What would your answer be? We've got to go below the surface. And that's what Naomi does. She says, look, I've told you about my Lord. Go home. Find some new husbands. May the Lord give you rest. But in verses 9 and 10, Orpah and Ruth weep and refuse. So in verse 11, Naomi goes all in on making the case for why you should not follow her back to the land of Judah. Why you shouldn't follow God. She would not. Naomi did not take an evangelism course, apparently. Right, the angel's like, let me tell you all the great things God will do for you. Naomi's like, Naomi's like, do not come back with me. Because following the Lord is hard. It's tough. It's challenging. Naomi's being like Jesus was with the rich young ruler. You remember the rich young ruler? Jesus, I'll follow you. Great, just sign this card, pray this prayer. We'll make you a church member. You tithe great. No, Jesus doesn't say that. Go sell everything you have. And give it to the poor. Abandon your life and your dreams and everything. And take up the dream that God has for you. And walk with me. Is what Jesus says to the rich young ruler. And it's essentially what Naomi is telling 
these two daughters-in-law. She's showing us the cost of discipleship. Turning to God means following Him no matter the hardships that must be faced in so doing. So Naomi tells them, look, I'm going to go to Bethlehem, and when I get there, I still won't have a husband to meet my needs. I still won't have a son to secure my property rights and perpetuate my family name. I don't even know how I'm going to get bread. She is too old to have sons. Do you remember any stories in the Old Testament before Ruth about women who were too old to get sons? I mean, why would she say that? Maybe it's a clue that at the end of the story, this old woman will be holding a son. More on that in the sermons to come. And oh, by the way, if I did miraculously somehow have a son tomorrow, are you going to sit around and wait around to marry him? The, the word literally is imprison yourselves. Would you put yourselves in prison waiting for my sons to grow up? What are you talking about? You're not going back with me to Judah. And then in verse 13, she says, if that's not bad enough, look, I'm the one who sinned. I'm the one who left Moab and, and the Almighty has, has dealt bitterly with me. And, and it's, it's hard to make out exactly the sense of what's going on there. But I believe the Hebrew is telling us she's basically saying she's not having a pity party. She's saying the adversity of the Lord toward me for my sin is too much for you to share in. So don't go with me. And then in verses 14 through 18, Orpah and Ruth show us the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Between regret and repentance. When Orpah hears of the cost of going to Bethlehem, she kisses Naomi goodbye. But Ruth clings to Naomi. You know where else we see that little word clings? We see it in Genesis 2.24 when God says to Adam and Eve that, father, that a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. It's to be radically united with someone. It's to be joined inseparably with someone. Ruth says, everything that is mine and is my life is now attached to you and to your God and to your people. Orpah left for her people and for her gods. Ruth says, why don't you just follow her? Why don't you just do the same? You see, Orpah and Ruth have both wept two times, verses 9 and 14, but... They weep for different reasons. Orpah regrets that she will not see Naomi again. She regrets that her husband has died. She regrets that she still doesn't have a son. She regrets that things have not gone as she hoped. But she is not repentant. But when Ruth weeps, she weeps tears of conviction. Ruth says, I will join God's people. I will trust Him no matter what it costs me. So Ruth says to Naomi in verse 16, stop it. I'm not going to talk to you anymore about this. You're not going to talk me out of this. I'm going with you. I'm remaining with you. Your God will be my God. I will be buried in your land in anticipation of the resurrection that's going to come through your people. Why does she talk about burial? Hebrews do the burying. They wait for God to come and raise the body. Why would she talk like this? Well, I don't know what the conversations with Naomi had been like. I don't know if she was remorseful over her coming to Moab. But perhaps, maybe, maybe Ruth had heard the story about that Moabite king who had commissioned Balaam to pronounce a curse against Israel. You remember that? Back in Numbers chapter 22. 
And Balaam kept trying to curse the people of Israel. And every, try, every time he tried to curse them, all he could speak was blessing. And then in the, in the last series of blessings, do you remember what Balaam said? He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter is going to rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab. Uh-oh, Ruth is not in a good place to be. One from Jacob will have dominion. Naomi did not leave Bethlehem to be a missionary. But God allows her painful time in Moab to lead to Ruth's great salvation. God, through the sojourn in Moab, is bringing even the nations to Himself. And even allowing the nations to have a part in the birth of His Son. The Son who would be God's Son and Savior for all Nations, Friend, if you're here this morning and God is convicting you, He's leading you back even this morning. We're going to have a hymn of invitation or a song of invitation in a moment. We're going to say we long for Christ to come. Maybe you need to start with longing for Christ to come in your heart again. And then you'll have opportunity on Monday morning at the office to give testimony that you've been living a double life. But God is bringing you back. Don't miss the opportunity to leverage your disobedience. As a way to return not only yourself to God, but others as well. <clears throat> Naomi is convinced that Ruth is convinced in verse 18. She says nothing more. These two sonless widows will return to Bethlehem together. What's going to happen when they get there? Scene 3. Entering Bethlehem. When the empty return to the Lord, God has a harvest. Waiting. When the empty return to the Lord, God has a harvest waiting. Naomi returns to Bethlehem and it stirs up all the city. Did you know that God could take the repentant heart of one person in this church and stir up the whole church? One man or one woman or one young lady or one young man who's trapped in sin and knows that they owe their life to God. That you would come today and say, I am giving it all over to God. I repent of whatever it is, whatever addiction or pattern or behavior or selfishness. In that moment, God could not just change your life. He could stir up a church. And if he'd stir up a church, he could even change a valley because somebody had the boldness to leave Moab, return to Bethlehem, and find that God will feed them there. This is all it takes for a church to believe again in the regenerating power of God is for one person to come to faith and see the whole community transformed. You say, Pastor, what are you praying for? I'm praying for the one. I don't know who you are, but I know you're here. So the women of the city come to Naomi and they ask, is this Naomi? You came back? And when they ask her that, Naomi is ready with her confession. No, I am not Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me bitter instead. Yes, I've endured a great deal. I've left Bethlehem and the promises of God. And when you do that, the almighty El Shaddai allows you to reap the bitter consequences of your sin. The Lord took me to cosmic court, verse 21, and He witnessed against me. He told me what I had done, that I had abandoned the land of His grace and not turned to Him, but turned to my own wicked ways. 
But you need to understand something, O oh, women of this city. When I left, I was full. I was, ple I was pleasant because I was full of myself. I was full of determination. I had a full family. And then I left. And I learned the bitter emptiness that comes when our lives are filled by anything other than the Lord Himself. You see, when there was a famine in Bethlehem, I was full. But I was full of myself. I should have known that God would have provided bread for His people. He provided for you. You know who I am and you're still here and you're still alive today. I could have stayed in Bethlehem and had bread to eat, but I didn't because I was full of my family and my dreams and my ambitions and everything that I could do. And I didn't want to turn to God because I had sons who were sick and tired and my life was a wreck and I didn't understand. And so I ran away from God. And I've known the bitter disappointment of self-trust. I've known that it fails every time, but I've come back to Bethlehem. I'm humble. I'm destitute. I have not been pleasant. I have been bitter, but I am also empty. And the good news, North Arnold Baptist Church, is that God can't fill or won't fill people who are full of themselves, but He will fill the empty when they turn to Him every single time. Look at verse 22. It's Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, it's the beginning of barley harvest. You see, church, when empty people turn to the Lord, the harvest that He has in store for North Roanoke Baptist Church is only beginning. The harvest that He has for the Roanoke Valley when we get serious and go down below surface level issues is only beginning. God doesn't fill the full. He fills the empty. If you're empty this morning, would you run to the Savior? We know it's possible because the rest of the story is coming. Because this story leads us to Jesus who would be the bread of life, John 6. Born in the house of bread, slain to die in the place of sinners, and raised to give us life in Him. Which is why that Mary could say after the angel visited her and told her that she would give birth to Jesus, the Lord has filled the hungry with good things. If you're empty, frustrated, Bitter, anxious, sick and tired of being sick and tired of trying to make your own way in the world. Come to Jesus today. Unite with His people today. You say, well, I'm not perfect. Neither are we. We're broken sinners who are empty and needed a, in need of a Savior just like you. Today is the day to come to Jesus and be filled. Eternally filled. Would you pray with me? God, we love you. I ask that you would work in this place. Lord, you know who the one is that you are bringing to repentance, that you are bringing home, and thereby you could bring an entire church with them. And God, you could bring an entire valley with them. So often revivals begin with just a few who get serious about living their lives in the fullness that only Christ can give. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would have your will and your way this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.